Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today, I have the pleasure to speak with Benjamin Wittes, who is the author of Campaign 2012, 12 Independent Ideas for Improving American Public Policy. This collection of stories that Ben has edited is published recently by Brookings Institution Press. I've had the chance to talk to him today. I hope that you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Ben Wittes, from the Brookings Institution to New Books in Political Science. Thanks for having me. And I wonder if, uh, before we get uh, to the discussion of this uh, recent publication, Campaign 2012, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got to Brookings, and what your current role is. Well, so I'm, uh, for one thing, I'm not a political scientist, um, unlike a lot of people at Brookings. I'm actually a journalist by background. Um, I do most of my um, writing in the area of law, um, American law, and particularly in recent years in national security law. Um, I come originally from sort of a weird subfield of journalism, which is legal journalism. I I came up through um, a small, now defunct newspaper called Legal Times and was plucked away from there as a... um, you know, in in the late 90s um, by the Washington Post editorial page for which I wrote the legal affairs editorials for uh, nearly a decade. And I left there um, about five years ago and came to Brookings to sort of do legal affairs writing. Um, And partly because of my editorial writing background, um, which, you know, sort of involves synthesis of... of, um, you know, all kinds of policy areas in the context of campaigns. Um, I ended up this year sort of coordinating Brookings's coverage of the 2012 campaign, of which this book is this sort of principal product. Right. I suspect as a result of you, your background, this is a um, quite a, a readable uh, political science book. Well, so for that, it's it's uh, commendable. I certainly hope so. I know. I, you know, the, the the goal of any of these projects, as as you particularly 
No, you know, is to be useful, both useful in the context of uh, giving the public and the sort of interested policy-oriented components of the public a sort of lens through which to look at the campaign that gets in the daily press and and television really filtered through, um, you know, issues like you know, Bain Capital or Jeremiah Wright or, or stuff that's from a policy point of view sort of noise. Um, and then also ultimately to be useful, hopefully, in, in a governance sense to people who, you know, may end up working in, in either a second Obama term or a first Romney term, um, just to distill a series of ideas on the sort of principal issues of the day uh, that you know, policymakers may actually find useful. And I do think that for purposes of being useful to policymakers, a a certain threshold of readability is important. And so we've tried to keep the essays relatively brief, and we've tried to keep them at a level of accessibility um, that, you know, are approachable uh, from a lot of different, you know, levels of the academic hierarchy. Right. So let's let's get to the book. Uh, you serve as editor, and you also wrote the introduction and co-wrote the final chapter with Daniel Byman. I wonder if you can talk briefly about how you chose the authors of these eleven chapters. Well, um, so the you know there were a few considerations um, in you know we have a building full of people with policy ideas. And some of the issues, um, so when you're choosing issue authors, you're also choosing issues. Um, and so the question is, you, you wanted to, we, we wanted to choose 12 subjects, um, partly for, um, you know, partly because you have to choose some arbitrary number. Um, and 12 in, in 12 uh, seemed like a good uh, as good a conceit for an arbitrary number as any. Um, and I, I think the, so you're trying to divide the world up into 12 subjects and to, you know, involve 12 authors, which is actually 36 authors, because the way we structured the book was that each paper would have a main paper, which would try to synthesize um, the virtues of the last four years of policy, assuming there are virtues of it, with the virtues of the critique of that policy coming out of the Republicans, assuming there are virtues in the critique, and to synthesize that into something like recommendations for the next administration in that area. And so you're you're actually involving, uh, and for each of those main papers, we invited two people in um, or groups of people elsewhere in the institution to write response papers. And so for each group of 12 issues, we actually have three um, discussions, a main discussion and then two responses. And so what you're looking for is a way to divide up the world into 12 subjects that kind of lends itself well to that sort of discussion. Now, some of the issues um, in this campaign are so obvious that they're not discretionary. So, for example, um, you need something on, on jobs, right? You need something on deficit um, fiscal management. 
you need something on Iran, right? These are issues that the candidates either are talking about or certainly will be talking about. In those cases, there are issues that the candidates are talking about. Um, but they're going to play major roles in the campaign, and there's no way to organize a, a, a book like this without, you know, focusing on them pretty substantially. Um, so in those cases, you know, picking authors is very easy because you have you have obvious subjects and then you have people within the building who have really bored into those subjects over a long period of time. So, for example, the our Iran chapter, well, we just happen to have a, you know, a real Iran policy, um, you know, expert in, in Suzanne Maloney in 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 our foreign policy studies department. So in some of those cases, it's very easy. Once you know what the subject is, you just, there, you know, there's an address within Brookings to, to, to deal with that. In some of those cases, um, the subject is um, a little bit less obvious. Um, so for example, um, you know, we included a chapter in a discussion on institutional reform, which is frankly, you know, an area that the candidates aren't talking about and probably won't be talking about throughout this, um, uh, you know, campaign. Uh, we made the judgment that it's an issue that the candidates should be talking about. And so there is a sort of a normative component to the choice of subjects. Um, and some of that was because, you know, in that case, I, I really feel strongly that over a long period of time, my colleague Bill Galston um, has had a lot to say about institutional reform and why we should be thinking about it more. And so, I, you know, I made a judgment that we should inject some of that into the project, into the book. And that was, you know, a, a, a way to do that. So there's a, a variety of of ways that you choose um, combinations of authors and subjects, um, some of which are, pers you know, are, are driven by the force of the, the, the people that you have access to, and some of them are driven by the necessity of addressing the issues in question. Yeah, and, and let, me, let me continue by sort of combining two questions that I had into, into one, or one long question which is you start by reflecting on what Brookings did in 2008 with Opportunity 08. And then you make an argument that 2012 is different. I wonder if you could maybe briefly talk about the thrust of the previous publication and then what your argument is about what makes 2012 different and how that maybe affected how you put this book together. Well, so uh, the 2008 campaign was a truly unusual moment in recent American political history in that neither party's president was running for re-election nor was an incumbent vice president the nominee of the party. And that hadn't happened, I think, I want to say since the 50s. Um, yeah. And the result is that, you know, you had a, a sort of unusual opportunity to have an election with no um, with no presumed favorite party to win. Um, there was no there was no component of incumbency, um, you know, between a John McCain and a and a Barack Obama, um, and that created a, a a really unusual opportunity for an institution like this one to 
start from scratch and to think, okay, let's, let's identify all the areas that the policymakers ought to be thinking about and talk as though, as though you could start on a blank slate. Because in some sense, you really could. The next administration would not have sunk costs in, you know, in the policies of the previous administration. And so my, my colleague, uh, Michael Hanlon, um, ran a very ambitious project that involved, I mean, it was, you know, quite literally dozens of papers um, of which, which they took a, a, a sampling of and made a volume out of. But the Opportunity 08 paper was really, um, the, the Opportunity 08 project was really very expansive. Um, now, in the current context where you have a, a, an incumbent president running for re-election, um, the terms of the discussion are inevitably a little bit more constrained because the slate is not blank. You're, you're, a, a re-election campaign is always in some sense a referendum on the record of the incumbent in the last four years. And so we made a judgment this year that something as ambitious as what we did in 08 was sort of not appropriate. And what was appropriate instead was to be more focused and more focused specifically on the record of the administration, what could be said in favor of it and against it across a range of issues, and what the nature and merits of the critique of that record were. So it's a project that, you know, we is inevitably more focused and less, um, you know, sprawling and ambitious than one in which you really feel like you have all aspects of all policy areas potentially up for reevaluation. And so, we, you know, the, the, the goal was really to identify um, areas in which we could, on, on, on the most important issues, which is inherently a subjective judgment, of course, um, to identify what we could reasonably say about how to evaluate the record and how to, how to extend that into policy recommendations for the next administration, whether it's another term of Obama or, an, or a term of Romney. Right. One of the things that you make clear in the book is, is the independence of, of Brookings as, a, as an institution. And you quote the Brookings president, Strobe Talbot, who said that you provide, quote, independent policy ideas. I wonder how difficult it is to maintain this independence when you're writing about so many controversial and partisan issues such as health care reform and climate change. Well, I think the answer is, I mean, you know, I, I personally work in an area that's very divisive from, a, from, a, from the point of view of partisan politics. The answer is it's always hard, and uh, you have to do it anyway. Um, and it's it's actually not more complicated than that. I, I think you know there are times when concentrations of ideas from an organization like this will be more attractive to one political party than to another. Um, and that's certainly okay. There are also times when, um, you know, alignments between um, 
collections of ideas and thought that, that are going on in an institution like this one will uh, align with what a, you know people in a polit- particular political party are arguing for at that same moment in time. And you just have to remember in those moments that, you know, all such uh, alliances are temporary and coincidental and that you would be as eager to be helpful to the other side if they were interested in your ideas at that moment as you are in 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 the situation that arises. And, and so I think, look, I mean, you know, there's um, an institution like this one to the extent that it does not maintain and cultivate um, the appearance and reality of genuine political independence. It will be less influential in the long run. And um, it's just a really important component of what we do is, is frankly how we do it. Let's talk about one of the, I thought one of the real interesting aspects of the book is that you allow for these authors to be in conversation with each other. And, and so Rivlin and Mann uh, disagree in some ways about healthcare politics, maybe not healthcare policy, but certainly healthcare politics. And so that Mann writes on page 55 that Rivlin's hopes for bipartisanship are fanciful and that, quote, those days are gone. Uh, did you, as the editor of the book, have to mediate any deeper conflicts or disagreements between the authors that were, uh, in some ways, debating on paper each other? Um, you know, I, I, broadly speaking, no. I mean, there's a, there's a long tradition in this building of um, people from different corners of the building having different views of policy and of the politics around policy. There was a long period of time when lots of people in our foreign policy studies department were writing for example, just as in an area that I work on, were very enthusiastic about the idea of closing Guantanamo, and I was uh, very skeptical that you know you could actually get that done. And we had, um, you know, they wrote what they wrote, and I wrote what I wrote, and that was perfectly fine, you know. And and it's not entirely common for us to collect the disagreement in, you know, in papers next to one another. But uh, that was actually part of the conceit of this project, was to show sort of the diversity of thought um, in, um, you know, within the building. And sometimes, as you point out, with respect to to Alice Rivlin and Tom Mann, it's really about the politics around what you could get done rather than about what you should get done. But sometimes, as in the um you know uh, the discussion between various authors on deficit reduction um you know they actually disagree about the policy too i mean so in ron haskins's paper he really puts the ar- makes the argument that you know deficit reduction is the central goal and if you look at um belsahill's response uh, you know she takes the view you know that's deficit reduction is important, but jobs right now are more important. And, and so I think, you know, sometimes there's a, um, sometimes there's a, um, you know, sometimes it's policy differences and sometimes it's 
its differences in assessing the politics. Um, but you know, I think that's part of what makes Brookings, um, you know, frankly, a special place in the policy world is that that kind of disagreement is, um, you know, is not a problem here. In fact, we often showcase it, and this is an example of that. Yeah, I think it's one of the aspects of the book which makes it appropriate, and I think, in fact, could be really interesting to be included in a undergraduate, advanced undergraduate course, or, or even a graduate course, is, is that attention to the um, paying, paying attention to both sides of an issue. Well, I certainly wouldn't um, discourage that. I mean, that's I, right. <laughs> um, you know, the, the another example I should just cite of that is, you know, Dan, you mentioned Dan Byman in my paper. Um, you know, one of the responses to that paper is fairly sharp, you know, in, in, in suggesting that we are overly enthusiastic about drone strikes and, um, um, and insufficiently attentive to, um, you, you know, to humanitarian concerns. And so, you know, there, there, there's a, there is a range of opinion within the building, um, or the buildings. We don't, the institution doesn't take positions on issues and we don't try to hide or paper over the fact that there's lots of things that that any two people in this building will be on different sides of or approach somewhat differently. Right. Well, now, one of the uh, aspects of this book that makes it different from other political science books, particularly the ones that, that I've focused on in this podcast, is one of purpose and audience. And so what I was wondering about was once this was published, how you marketed or publicized the book. Did you have the chance to share copies with the two major presidential campaigns? Uh, was there a major event tied to the release? Uh, what about the, the, the outreach that was done once this came out in print? Well, so the, the major outreach has been less with respect to the book itself than with respect to the, the groups of papers within it. For each of the groups of papers, um, we have had an event. Um, and the event has put the author of the main paper and the author of the uh, commenting papers, uh, you know, on a stage just to talk about them. And these events have been, you know, very well attended, actually. Um, I've hosted most of them. Um, but um, and then the next one coming up is next week. Um, and so we've done less promotion of the book qua book than of the, the, the groups of papers within it. Um, you know, there came a point uh, about a month and a half ago when we had collected all the papers and published them in the book, and we, we, the books are available at the events, and we're, you know, but, but the, the outreach has largely been about the individual groups of papers rather than the book as a whole. Um, as to, um, you know, outreach to the campaigns, um, you know, we, we're constantly, you know, trying to, uh, you know, put our work in the hands of people to whom it may be relevant and, and, um, you know, that would, we would, that would certainly be something we would, you know, generally want to do. Right. So, and I know we're getting towards the end here, but 
what I, one of the things that I wanted to ask about was, you know, for academic book authors, figuring out what makes a book successful is, is frankly a bit of a mystery uh, because we know book sales aren't into the, well, they're rarely even into the hundreds, if not thousands. Um, I wonder how you will know if this book is successful. Is there a way that you would judge the success of, of, of the book? It's a really interesting question. And, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm not sure I even, you know, I, I'm not sure I know how to answer it. When I've written books um, or edited books within a much narrower subject matter, for example, I wrote a book about judicial confirmations, and I wrote, I've written several books related to law and security. And I know how to evaluate the success or failures of those books because there's an intimacy in the community that works on those issues that you can actually really tell whether the book has, as some of them have had, zero impact at all or whether they've been kind of integrated into the discussion in ways that seem substantial and important. Um, and when you, t when you talk about something as sprawling as all policy, all, all policy on the 12 most important issues um, in a presidential campaign, it's very, very difficult to figure out in any direct sense what the impact is, what the importance is, and therefore to evaluate success or, or, or failure. Um, that said, look, there are a few... There are a few metrics, and one is that eventually campaigns turn into um, transitions. And when the people who are associated with, you know, a project like this are consulted by transitions, are, are reached out to by transitions, that's an indication of something. Similarly, when candidates... Um, start speaking in language, in policy language that's reminiscent of, they often won't attribute it, of course, but reminiscent of arguments that show up in projects like this. You can kind of draw conclusions from this. And then, and then finally, um, you know, there is the, 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 the question of, of collateral influences on the way the press talks about issues, the way, um, you know, other organizations discuss issues. And these are all relatively diffuse and they're all relatively hard to measure. And there's a kind of, you know, when John Paul Stevens said about pornography that he knows it when he sees it, uh, that's kind of the, the, the way you have to evaluate impact and, and effect in something like this. Sounds like uh, these these assessments are as confusing as the academic world has about making uh, uh, assessments about the, the more more scholarly books. I, I, think ben, that's, I think that's right. Although you know there are in in the policy world there are these moments where your impact is extremely clear, either for for good or for ill, right? Because every now and then people do something and attribute it to work product that they've read. 
Um, and, you know, you can sort of draw a straight line between a piece of work product and a policy outcome, These, or, or at least to a policy input. And these things are not common. It's relatively rare that you can do that, but they do happen, um, and that's obviously sort of a kind of gold standard. Yeah. Ben, thank you very much for your time today. This book, Campaign 2012, 12 Independent Ideas for Improving American Public Policy, is published by Brookings Institute, uh, Institution Press. It's available at their website. I'm sure that uh, some of these events that are talking about uh, this book are also available at the Brookings website. I hope that everyone has a chance to either read or, or uh, read something about this. I think it's a very important book. Ben, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.